Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. This is a slightly special podcast because it's actually Emma and Nat's last show. Yes, Badass Women's Hour will continue with me, but Emma and Nat are off to pastures green, and so we've decided it's a bumper edition. This week, we're giving you nearly three hours of amazing interviews with incredible women. In this first episode, you'll hear from a woman who managed to fall 25 feet and survive for four days in the desert, and another one who is changing the lives of refugee women around the world single-handedly and there are even more brilliant women to come. All of that and more coming up here on the next mm, hour and a half. In an effort to really make us all cry tonight. Why did you do but it's a bit sad? Don't start crying now, Emma. We've got three hours to get That's through. So uh, it is Emma and Nat's last yeah. badass women's hour. Ladies and gentlemen, very sad night. Uh, we are going to be chatting throughout the show about some of our favourite bits and uh, favourite memories of the last four years. Where has that gone? How excited are you guys about having a Saturday night back? Woo woo! What are you going to do? <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do Freak myself. Out. Sleep. I mean, that's going to party. Emma's like, I'm just going to bed really early. She's, not, she's going to be in bed <laughs> yeah. by 9pm yeah, with exactly. a kettle chip. Standard. Standard. Um, we are going to be chatting about our favourite memories all the way through the show. But if you've got something you remember us for, I mean, this is just asking for oh, trouble, no. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's something you'd like to say to Emma and Nat before they depart, a moment where they really touched you, hopefully not literally. <laughs> not <physically. laughs> Give us a call, 0344 499 or tweet us at talkradio. Uh, so, budget this week, and Rishi Sunak has been making a play to be the feminist chancellor by announcing that he is officially cutting the tampon tax. So, tampon tax was the VAT applied to tampons and sanitary products in the UK, and it used to be at, I think... 20% and then it got slashed uh, under George Osborne to 5% and that 5% has now officially announced it will be going. I realise that this actually only saves us women about 40 quid over the course of our lifetime. Not that excited about it. I oh, thought I'd really? be more excited. No, Do you think it's symbolic, Ems? Yeah, it's the principle, isn't it? Mm. It's the principle because VAT is on luxury items, really, yep. isn't it? And like mm-hmm. trades. Um, and they're not a luxury item. And I think that that's been 
you know, there's a lot of conversation around that, isn't there, in terms of like, you know, giving away free um, the sanitary, the period poverty that, mm-hmm. you know, young girls at school are suffering yep. from. So I think it's much more of like saying, you know, this is, we we need this as women. It's not a luxury item. So that, that is a good thing. Mm. Now, do you think it's going to make that much difference to women's lives? I... Will it make a difference to women's lives? Look, um, saving £40 for us based on our earning, um, no. But for a family of women, buying them actually where Mm -hmm. every penny counts, yes, it might make a difference. I think one of the things that we need to think about, yes, Emma, it's the principle of removing uh, the tax from something that is not essential. But over the last few years where... Under George Osborne, the 5% was then donated to other women's organisations. In the right, We've got that equated to £47 million going mm-hmm. to women's organisations, some of it to... Um, yeah, well, yeah, £47 million to, to women's organisations. Is that money going to be replaced? Oh, um, and if it's not going to be replaced, what do those organisations then do? Um, so there's that. But also... I expect that I expect the price of a tampon to go down. Yes. So if the companies then still charge a rounded up number mm-hmm. and actually take that 5p or 7p and put it into their own coffers because actually when you times it by millions their bottom that line looks better. Up. That will annoy me no end. But the thing is, like you say about that that percentage, if that five percent tax was going into uh, to supporting women, mm. that's women paying for the support of women. And yep. I'm like, can we put that five percent tax on? I don't know. I don't know men's razors. Yeah, <laughs> there is something really I think frustrating about that, which is as you say, it's forty seven million. It's a lot of money, and mm. a lot of that money that does support women's organisations disappeared under yep. austerity. Uh, we know that kind of things like women's refugees were kind of hit much, much harder. And so it's, are they going to replace that? But also, why is it always women who are supporting women? Exactly. Why are we paying for the yeah. right to have services that we should be getting for free because we need them? What they them? should be doing, is, I think, is it's the people who make these products. I don't think you should be allowed to make a profit or I think that... Mm. You know, you should be capped on the profit that you can make on these goods because they are essential items. They're not a luxury item. So, so the, my challenge there though is, we know if if we asked, uh, and I always get this wrong. I, I always say Johnson Johnson, and they don't make the products. So let's say P and G or Unilever. If we said, okay, you should not make any money on on these products, the quality of the product would go down, mm-hmm. um, and they'd be they wouldn't be made as well as they are when we're paying for them. And based on it being a period. Per Personally, I want a pad or a tampon that works so I can afford to pay for it. What I don't mind is paying for something based on my affordability to ensure another woman mm-hmm. can have them for free. And so, yes, as a woman, if I have to support another woman because the system isn't stepping up, that's fine. But I still want to know that the women's organisations that have had this money to date will be supported from a centralised when the other money thing goes. that I don't understand why we don't do is make it in the same way that we do with prescriptions, whereby up to a certain level you pay for your up to a certain level you pay for your prescriptions, and if you are below that level, mm. if your income is below that level, then your prescriptions are free. Yeah, and that's just how it works, and that should be, I think, sort of the same formula. It's essentially a medical thing, and well, it's, it's, it's a life essential, it's a life right? Essential, yeah. 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 We know that for girls who don't, and we're going to be talking about this again later in the show, but girls who don't have access to this. They are less likely to go to school. Mm-hmm. They'll suffer confidence issues. It has a much bigger impact on them than just having to stuff a bit of loo roll in your knickers. 
Um, that's the budget. Tomorrow is International Women's Day. Uh, are we noticing it this year? I, I feel like because it's on a Sunday, mm. it's sort of passing me by a little bit. I think it's also the coronavirus. Mm. Because I just events. feel like that's kind of overshadowed everything, really. Yeah. And then people are a bit nervous about doing events now as well, aren't they? So I, I feel like there's less noise, but yeah. I feel like it's a virus that's drowned that out. No, so I... Um, I feel slightly differently. I think that the, convers the conversation about women mm -hmm. is happening loudly pretty much every day. Yeah. Uh, and so International Women's Day doesn't feel like it has as big a place per se yeah. because the movement to talk about badass, empowered, powerful women um, feels more consistent. Mm -hmm. What I do like about International Women's Day is that it's a day to refocus the lens in spaces where women aren't always covered. Uh, and so Time did a really use, interesting spread saying, you know, they can't rewrite history, but they can sort of rethink things. I've probably got it wrong. And they've come up with some really brilliant imagery for the front covers of Time magazines that they could have had with brilliant women on it. And so I think that's the usefulness of International Women's Day. And so is it about events and people standing on stages and panels saying the same thing that we've always said for the last mm -hmm. however many years? Or is it about taking using the day to say, right, if we're going to do one thing, we're going to do this one thing really, really loudly. I wonder if there is a point in your life as a woman when you become interested in International Women's Day and the politicisation of women's lives mm. and that it's kind of your awakening and then you get to a point where you've heard it all before and then you kind of <laughs> close down again. Because that's a bit how I feel, which yeah. is I feel like if you'd asked me in my late 20s, did women have that many issues, I would have said, no, I think we're pretty equal. Mm. And then about 28, 29, I was like, oh, Ooh. look how wrong I was. <laughs> and here we are kind of 10 years later and I'm like, okay, now I know how wrong I was and I know what's got to change and I'm interested in it, but I can't. Like you said, it's, it's part of my daily life now mm. as opposed to something that I need specific events for. No, no. So, you know, let's go back. Um, two years ago, mm -hmm. would uh, a woman sitting on a stage just talking about her life have sold out an international arena, a uh, stadium tour? No. Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama mm -hmm. did that, mm -hmm. right? And so there are more avenues to hear a woman... Um, throughout the year versus that Michelle yeah. Obama occasion would have just happened that once on International Women's Day because that's the only point, point that you would have got that many women into mm -hmm. a space to, to listen to another woman. The books, I mean, we've got a whole load of books on our table right now. In the last couple of years that we've been doing this show, there have been books highlighting badasses from history, books mm -hmm. on rebellion, books on how to, you know, how to be alone, how to get over a boy. And so the narrative of being a girl, being a woman, being a badass woman, being a woman in, 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 that leads, but also being a vulnerable woman, that has, for me, I think, significantly moved on. Mm, so you don't need a day to be like, we should be bold or whatever it was last yeah. year, because we're doing it every day. It feels day. mainstream now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Definitely does. I, def I definitely feel like there's a change in the four years. You know, we we started on International Women's Day, don't we? And didn't we? And you know, in our very early shows, we used to do backdated badass because no one was talking about women in history. And like mm -hmm. you're saying that, there's loads of books out now. So, but I, I do. I certainly feel like you, Harry, in terms of like I feel like my feminist conversation is over ten years now since I've yeah. I've had my first awakening where I was like, oh no, everything's fine, and then went, oh no, uh, maybe it's not, no, it's maybe not. it's not, and now I think I'm 
I'm much less interested in talking about it. And someone did ask me to do a panel this year and I kind of politely declined because I just Mm -hmm. thought I don't really want to talk about it. I'm much more interested in the action and the action that I can do personally Mm -hmm. to change things. Mm. Do you know something I'm really proud of? The fact that our producer Johnny, who couldn't say the word vagina um, yeah. when he started yeah. with us, says now vagina he quite often. Talking about <laughs> yeah. vaginas, I mean, I just can't get him off our WhatsApp group. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, really ultimately the whole point of feminism, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, to make the young men of today be able to say vagina without blushing. Johnny has been on a journey. We should ask him about that later because I do remember when he first started working with us. He's going, "Why, why do you keep talking about diversity? What's your problem?" And he's, he's like, "We're all equal. We're, We're all, all equal. equal. There are lots of women that work here." Yeah. And they they get paid the same as everybody. <laughs> mm. oh. The Badass Women's Hour is Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. As long as Mercury isn't in retrograde. Uh, and we're joined by an amazing woman in the studio. Laura Middleton-Hughes and her friend Nikki Newman have set up an incredible support group called Secondary Sisters for women fighting breast cancer. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, nice to be here. Tell us, first of all, what does Secondary Sisters do? So me and Nikki both have secondary breast cancer and we're both in our early 30s. We felt there was a huge lack of discussions around secondary cancer, um, awareness, education. And so we decided to basically become that voice. So Secondary Sisters is a platform at the moment on Instagram and we share uh, info posts we get other sort of spotlight posts for different um, secondary thrivers on board and it's just somewhere where people can talk about it and so not be scared for anyone who doesn't know what do we mean by secondary cancer so a primary cancer is when you have your uh, cancer cells are in a particular place so my primary was breast um, now my breast cancer has spread to my bone so it's not bone cancer it's cancer cells breast cancer cells sorry within the bone mm. so it's basically moved to a different part of the body and this can be um, in breast cancer especially it's more likely to be bone lung liver or brain and um, we both have it in the bones which at the moment is manageable um, and it's but it's not treatable so it's not curable so we are living with this sort of terminal illness um when you say you're living with a terminal illness I mean I guess most of us sort of feel like cancer has stages and when you hit a certain stage that's it what tell us what you mean by living with what does that look so like so these days treatment has become so advanced that actually you like you get a secondary diagnosis and it doesn't automatically mean that you're written off you have treatments that can be managed and so like my cancer is in my spine and my pelvis still it will still stay there it's not going anywhere but at the moment my treatment is keeping it stable so it's kind of dormant rather than doing anything at any point that treatment could change so that's why they class it as incurable because it could be you know next scan I have it could have spread somewhere else and then that treatment line isn't working any longer so there's only so many treatment lines and obviously for different types of cancer different treatment lines you know it might be one treatment line 10 treatment lines um and advancements are happening all the time so you know it it's livable now with a cancer diagnosis it doesn't automatically mean that you're not going to be here but obviously it probably you know will get us in the end unfortunately so talking about it now you know you sound really stoic and pragmatic but i mean what was it like getting your first diagnosis and then hearing about the secondary cancer? So my story started actually in 2014. Um, I was only 25. Uh, I was fit, healthy, you know, 
normal 25 year old and I found a little tiny lump. Now I'm really, really fortunate my doctor took me seriously because that is the problem actually at that mm. age, not many people do. And I didn't think it was breast cancer. I didn't, cancer didn't even cross my mind. And it wasn't until I had a biopsy, a scan, um, and a mammogram that they actually discovered it was breast cancer and already it was stage three. Now that mean it had actually spread to my lymph nodes. Um, but at that point it still was curable. Mm. And I went through the chemotherapy, radiotherapy, hormone treatment, mastectomy, like everything they could throw at me, it happened. And I actually had about a year in remission and that year was brilliant. I was building my life again. Um, obviously nothing can prepare you for a primary diagnosis anyway, but I think I was just very practical and was like, right, I'm just going to get over this. Mm. The secondary diagnosis really hit me very hard. Um, I think the only way you can describe it, so this was back in October 2016, so I was 28. And I, if, the only way you can really describe it is you go into a bit of a black hole. You know, you don't know how that's going to pan out for your future. You get told that you're going to be on these drugs, but they may not work. Um, I had to have a major operation on my shoulder to replace my uh, humerus bone. I've had to endure more chemotherapy. Mm. And... It's taken a long time to get to the point that I kind of feel now that I'm, I'm living quite well and enjoying life. Mm. Um, you have to sort of find your new normal again. But yeah, it's, it's devastating, obviously, when you do get that diagnosis. And for everyone around you, it's, it's really scary. Absolutely. And did you consider setting up a support group before you had the secondary cancer? Or were you just almost sort of going through it and thinking, right, I'm just going to get to the other side and then move on? So actually locally, I'm in, I'm in Norwich, um, we did actually have a, a younger women's breast cancer support group, which mm-hmm. I actually helped run. Yeah. Uh, I didn't set it up. It was set up by some other ladies and we took over. And that was fantastic. And it gave me something to focus on. Um, until the secondary diagnosis, I think I didn't really, I, I didn't know about secondaries that much. And actually people talk about primaries all the time. So actually, it's really important to talk about secondaries because mm. people do not. People get scared by the word. People think incurable, we don't want to talk about it, it's taboo. Mm. And it can be a really, really lonely place. And when you're trying to pick yourself up out of that dark hole and trying to sort of move on with life, if people keep kind of stopping your conversation mm. because they don't want to know or, mm. or dismissing the fact that you're actually going through something quite serious... It can be really hard. So actually by being this voice and actually speaking to other people, we have had incredible response from like uh, other cancer patients. And it's not just cancer patients. We we say all this to it's, it's actually to the general public. Anyone can follow our page and loads of people find it useful. But the messages we get from other secondary cancer patients is just we needed this. We need to be able to feel like we're not alone. And that is so, so important. Mm. What do you think? Is there is there a, a common theme that you see with the people in your community who've got secondary cancers? Because like you say, the journey's the journey's very different from the, the first cancer diagnosis to get that secondary. What's the kind of common theme that you know the are they predominantly women have you got men in your group as well as predominantly we have started actually having a few men so yeah. we do uh, what we call thrivers posts uh, or spotlight posts and we have actually only just posted recently about a man who's got secondaries <clears throat> the thing is it's less common having a secondaries as a breast cancer but as we move on in in doing what we're doing we are going to probably introduce other types of cancer kind of with, right. within it so, so actually then we might see more more male ones as well and then, and so, what's that common? The common thread that people really need support with. What is the, what's the thing that you sort of see time and time again? I think there's so there's a lot of side effects that come come with having a, a secondary diagnosis. Not necessarily just treatment side effects. It can be things like your mental health, mm. fertility issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think the support we've found is just people saying we we felt like we were the only one going through this, and. 
I mean, so me and Nikki, actually, when we set up Secondary Sisters, I've been going through my secondary diagnosis for over three years now. Me and Nikki only met. We met briefly a year ago, but actually didn't set up anything and didn't properly meet till August last year. So this is Mm. just under seven months ago. And I've not felt I've found anyone that I can relate to until I met her. So actually for us, it's so important knowing that maybe we can put people in touch with other Mm. people. We can maybe create that community that people find you know find the ability to speak to someone um so that's probably predominantly where you know the most support is got yeah and and how has it helped you meeting somebody who's in that same scenario because I can't you know you talk about you know earlier like physically you're doing you're doing great right but I can't imagine the the term, you know, just the, the mental stamina that you need because mm. you're going to be frequently like, how often do you have to go back to hospital for treatment or checkups, constantly yeah. being scanned, you know, like how do you how do you keep that sort of mental positivity and, and how has meeting Nikki helped you to do that? So, yeah, my, my treatment at the moment involves three weekly treatment. So I'm in hospital for about sort of four or five hours every three weeks having infusion. Are you doing the infusion. immunotherapy? Is it the immunotherapy It's uh, a dual HER2 therapy. I think some people do class it as an immunotherapy. I've, I'm not really sure the exact sort of wording of it, but um, that's the drug sort of I'm on. I'm also on tablets daily. I have other tablets to combat side effects from other drugs that I'm on. So it's kind of a massive, you know, this whole new world of medication. Um I so meet, meeting Nikki was incredible because actually we 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 decided to meet up in London for a day out because we'd been chatting online for a little while and I've not come across somebody who we you know we don't really know each other but we're finishing each other's sentences mm-hmm. we're saying the same thing we're thinking the same thing we're agreeing with exactly you know everything she said I agreed with vice versa and I think it's because we both are on that same wavelength we both understand what each other are going through Everything from, you know, both wanting children, can't now have that. Uh, Both actually having the same kind of food wants, because that's the other thing. You get a lot of people who go, I'm going to change my whole diet. I'm going to, I'm going to go completely vegan, you know, no alcohol. And and so actually meeting Nikki, we're very similar. We both have the same, we're going to still drink wine. We're going to still have cake. (laughs) Like we want to do that. And I think that's so important as well. You find someone that's very similar. But by meeting her and by setting this thing up, it's, we found it really therapeutic Mm -hmm. because We've, we can just talk about everything. And she literally is someone I will talk to every day, more so probably than, you know, my close friends, because she gets it and yeah. I get her. And yeah. I think, you know, as I say, that, that is absolutely key, definitely finding somebody. Do you think, as you have built this community, that you have been able to accept your own diagnosis more? I've been very open from the beginning. I, I, I set up a bit of a blog and I kind of have always spoken about it. But I think more so recently, it has become my life. I think some people do worry that I may be involved in cancer too much. But it's it has, in a funny way, it has made me accept it a lot, lot more. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I hear other stories. I hear of other people doing really well. You know, obviously, we're putting ourselves in a really hard position because there's going to be people we meet along the way that unfortunately we do lose. Um but I think we get so much back from doing it and so much positivity that it's really helped us cope you know, and come to terms with it. And so to the point that you made, you said some people think that we're probably too in it. Is it that, do those people want you to almost pretend that you don't and act normal? I'm doing quotes, you know, quotes normal. <laughs> I, th- I think so. Yeah. I used to be, I used to be a hairdresser before all of this and, you know, 
I could have easily have gone back to that had I, I've had a shoulder replacement, which is why I couldn't. But yeah, I could quite easily have gone back to say the normal career and the normal job and the normal life. Mm. But my life is never going to be normal again. And I think, like you say, people, people sometimes are in denial that actually things are in your life forever. And I'm not going to suddenly, it's not a cold I'm going to get over. It's, it's, it's my life. Cancer is going to be here, whether I like it or not. So actually by doing something with my diagnosis and feeling like I'm using it in a positive way, mm. I find it, it, it does help me hugely. It's really rewarding. How do you, how do you live your life differently? Because now you've had that diagnosis, you know, you mentioned earlier that you wanted kids and that's not an option for you now. And, I, you know, I can imagine as a 25-year-old, there's a lot of, like, ambitions that you have and, you know, that sort of... How now you've got this diagnosis and now you have to live your life a, a little bit differently. What... Uh, yeah, what? how do you live your life? What's important to you now? What do you focus on? So I think, you know, you bring up a, a good point about the children thing. I think when we kind of went back to the secondary diagnosis, that was actually harder to hear that now I would never be able to have a family than actually having the diagnosis. I think, you know, you have so many... I'd, I'd grown up always wanting to be a mum. Um, it's now never going to happen, unfortunately. You know, people go, well, we could adopt, but you, it's not that easy. When you've got a diagnosis, mm. people aren't going to allow you to do that. And so, so I, that's taken a huge amount of time to come to terms with. And I think, again, the, the thing me and Nikki really connected on is she was actually going through IVF before her diagnosis of secondaries. Mm. She never had a primary diagnosis. And so we had that as a really good thing in common. So one thing I did when I started my uh, secondary journey is I set up what I class as my Laura's Life is for Living list. Mm. And this is a list of everything that I really want to do. And it might seem extravagant. I've been to the Maldives. I've, you know, <laughs> I've gone on loads of like nice afternoon teas and I've done sort of things I really wanted to do. But it gives me a focus. And you don't have to have an illness to have a, a living list. Yeah. Anyone should have a living list. Everyone should do things that they want to do in life. So I think that's the way I've changed my life around. I've gone, OK, well, I can't do this and I'm, I'm not going to be a mum. But do you know what? I'm going to go to Barcelona for the weekend because I can. Because yeah. I've got to, you know, in a way that's me running away from everything. I, I kind mm. of agree that it, in a way... You know, it's me going, well, I don't I don't have the life I want, so I'm having to compromise and do something different. Other people, it looks quite extravagant. If I could have had three kids and stayed at home and only going to centre parks for the weekend, I would have done. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not my life. So I make the most of what I've got. And actually, Nikki's just set up a living list and she's just actually booked her holiday to the Maldives <laughs> because she's like, why not? Why not? <laughs> Is that why she's not here? <laughs> Probably. No, no, bless her. She's really poorly and she would have been here. But yeah, so I think she's been in bed all day. So she has booked her holiday while she's in bed. <laughs> so I, I do want to know very quickly, you said that Nikki didn't have a primary diagnosis. Uh, it was just secondary. Can you tell us a bit more about her story? Yeah, so um, she found, well, she was going through IVF and she's, a naturally quite lumpy person and she noticed while she was going through her IVF um one of her lumps changed quite quickly lumpy in her breasts yeah yeah, yeah so lumpy breasts and um she flagged it up with her team and they were like well we're not we don't like this so they then put her in for a scan and she got told a few days later that she had breast cancer um at this point they didn't know it spread um then I think I think it was around the next day I'm not 100% sure then she was told that her IVF had failed um and then about a week later, then she had a scan back to say that it had spread to her bones already and it was in almost every bone in her body. Um, she then got put on a, a course of drugs, which actually has got rid of a lot of the cancer cells. But, you know, she's now... She actually had progression very recently. Um, she had a little spot up here. So she's now changed her drugs. So she's on like a line two of drugs. And um, so our stories are, are, you know, quite different. But 
we're going through the same mm-hmm. the same thing. So actually, for her, it was a huge blow to suddenly find out. You know, she's living now with a secondary diagnosis. And in a way, it's good because we both come from different angles with it. So if people come to us and want advice, I can talk about the primary thing. She's never had the the harsh chemo where you lose your hair and, and all that sort of stuff or radiotherapy. So I've done all that, but I'm, I, I've not been in her position where I've had the IVF and then had, you know, a diagnosis so quickly. So, I, you, you know, neither are worse than each other or better. If someone is listening to this and perhaps they've had a primary diagnosis and... There's sort of there's a fear for them, which is like, what if what if this comes back? What if this is me as well? What would you say to them? My motto is always: don't worry about things you can't change. Mm. Don't live your life thinking it might come back. If it comes mm. back, it will come back, and you have to deal with it at that time. And I'm I've I've always been one of these people that I think this is why I I, I come across a, I suppose quite positive is because I know that my next scan anything could change. But if I spend three months worrying and not enjoying life, then I've wasted three months of my life. Mm. So I'd say, you know, yes, it's hard. You've got to kind of, you've got to just pick yourself up, do everything you can, keep an eye on yourself, because that's the other thing. I actually, I was really fortunate that it hadn't spread further than my bones, but I left my pain. I had a pain in my right shoulder. I put down to a gym injury. I left it for nearly six months. And when I got scanned, it had taken over the whole of my humerus head and sort of fractured a part of my arm. I couldn't move my arm by this point. But at no point did I go, I think this cancer's back. I Mm -hmm. just assumed I'd injured myself. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's about being wary, get things checked out, don't leave things. And I'd say that to everybody, not just people who have had a cancer diagnosis if you have a pain or a problem for more than two weeks go and see your GP push to get an opinion if you're not if you don't feel like they're taking you seriously especially in the younger age because I do know a lot of people that unfortunately have been left because they're they're too young to have cancer and you know just live life anything can happen Laura thank you so much for coming in and talking to us it's been inspiring listening to you um, if people want to find Secondary Sisters where where should they look yeah so we're on uh, Instagram and Facebook at secondary.sisters uh, we do also have an email address secondary.sisters at outlook.com um, so please please send us over any messages or comments if you've got any you know that you want to want to ask us thank you very much Laura Middleton Hughes thank you so much for joining us Thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. Now, let's get back to our guest. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Now, some of you might remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Nat has a new job. Yes. Uh, she's now CEO of Bellu Water. And uh, when we were chatting about it, she said, actually, we've got to get the outgoing CEO in the studio because she is the most amazing woman with the most amazing story. Um, Nat, tell us a little bit about Bellu to begin with. Well, so we all have bottles of Bellu in the the studio, which is the first uh, most important thing. Um, But it is a, a water brand that donates 100% of its profits to WaterAid to ensure that people around the world have access to clean water. And it's the perfect example of a business, of a social enterprise that has disrupted the way you can do business that's not about taking out of the world and doing harm, but actually thinking about your impact every step of the way. So it's an absolute privilege to have Karen in the studio with us. Uh, Karen Lynch, hello. Welcome to the studio. Welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Um, 
that's Nat's summary of Velu. <laughs> she is How coming do I do? in. One. <laughs> How do you, when you started, when you started Velu, like 10 years ago, 10 years ago, Mm-hmm. What was the goal? What did you want to create? Well, firstly, can I just say this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we didn't even think about how it would be to have two CEOs for a month. Yeah. Either. So we're making this up as we go along. Um, and already it's a, it's a little bit it's a little bit strange. Um, but actually, the blue story began with a simple idea, the idea that you can do more through business than just make money. You can actually help solve the world's problems at the same time. You know, you don't have to get rich and then go, oh, got too many dresses and shoes, what do I do? Um, and so if you take it right back to the basics and to water, um, which we all need and we all take for granted, and then imagine a life without water, you know, without clean water to drink or decent toilets or hygiene education, and all of the things that brings with it, you know, and it particularly affects women. So very pertinent to talk about Blue on uh, International Women's Day, almost. Um, so it was the idea of could we do that? Could we disrupt the market with a brand that said first and foremost, what's the best way we can do this from a planetary perspective? So how do we reduce the environmental footprint to the absolute minimum? How do we show the whole water market, the whole drinks market, how this can be done if it's not purely about profit? But of course, really, really important to make profit because unless you make money, then other bigger brands don't sit up and listen. Mm -hmm. They don't go, oh, maybe 100% recycled PET is the way to go or maybe we should bother to lightweight our glass, you know. So making profit was really important. And then when 100% of those profits are invested through water aid, what you then get back is a a £4 to each pound invested return, you know, because it is the start of, you know, good growth for individuals, for communities, because you bring health therefore you bring industry um and so it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do so mostly i want blue not just to do what it does itself but to inspire others that they can start a business that makes positive change on the planet what was your journey into the business because you didn't start off in the social enterprise world no, I didn't. I did 13 years in media, magazines, <laughs> uh, what was it, EMAP then, and then worked in finance. Um, and, you know, particularly when I worked in magazines, I worked with people who loved what they did. You know, the guys on the angling magazines loved angling, <laughs> the bird watchers loved birds, you know, people were living their dreams. And then I went from there to, to finance. It just wasn't quite so personally rewarding for me. I seemed to lose purpose. Um, and so I decided I wanted to do something different. Wasn't sure what. Uh, I did what a lot of people, I think, do, was decided that I need to create some space to do that, consult a bit, take some time out. And I started writing to my favourite charities and they didn't write back. <laughs> and actually probably went through one of my lowest times, you know, from a personal perspective. I felt really unloved and unwanted and yet I was offering all of this experience to try and help. Uh, and at that time I came across what was very much an emerging way of doing business. Well, to me it was, I hadn't heard of it, which was this wonderful world of social enterprise. And how, so looking back 10 years ago, I feel like the modern business and the narrative now in the business world is that we sh- all businesses should be doing this and all businesses should be looking at their their social, their just their general impact. How hard was it in those early days running mm. a business that is a, a business that does good when you were probably a, a real lone ranger at that time? 
I don't think it's any easier now, actually. Okay. I don't think business for anybody is easy. I mean, particularly the last you oh, know, God, couple of years, let's yeah. not say the B yeah. word. <laughs> and then, the of course, word. now the C word. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think it's exactly the same as any other business. It's just, we, you know, our shareholders are people who need clean water to drink. Um, but I think the mentality of the, the business front from the start was we're never going to have a lot of resources. We can't compete with those big multinational, international brands on the same playing field. We've got to remake the game. We've got to do it differently. Um, and we do do it differently. So, you know, our, our philosophy is if we're talking to a restaurant or a hotel, this is their business. We're trying to help them do the right thing. And therefore, if they need uh, recycled plastic bottles, we'll do that. If they need refillables, if they need mineral water and glass. But actually, if they can make that move to using filtration systems, we've got a great uh, programme where we actually give them the filtration system without any charge. And then they collect one pound per table from the diners, which then goes to WaterAid. So we're really trying to innovate and therefore move more quickly with the sector because, you know, thankfully, since David Attenborough's wonderful Blue Planet series, you know, the, the world went crazy and started talking about the environment. And there is so much misinformation out there. We're still on a journey, but actually interest and taking accountability for doing things better is is great and so what is some of the misinformation that's out there um, so um, this is a really tricky one because, uh, you know, I'm going to walk out of here and get tomatoes thrown at me. <laughs> uh, we've lived through two years where people think plastics are bad yeah. and plastics aren't bad. People are bad. You know, that plastics aren't bad. Oh, no, let me put this right. Plastics are bad if you can walk over to a tap and use a glass, right? Yeah. Plastics aren't bad if you're thinking, I don't want to use plastics, therefore I'll use a can or a carton. You know, there are just so many other issues. And, and when you tell people you, they're bad, they tend to disengage and just want to do something quickly to remove that guilt and what we're trying to do with blue is, is go look it's more complicated than that um, you need to start to understand what a circular economy looks like using the resources we've already got and you need to start to understand about carbon emissions now up until two years ago nobody wanted to talk about either of those things uh, but actually they're now very interesting topics lots and from schools to universities to businesses everybody wants to upscale from a sustainability knowledge point of view and that's great news to help people make better choices and you talked about um this kind of that we're living in a world where everyone's like oh my god plastic how dare they are i as nat said at the beginning we're all sitting here with our water bottles and i thought oh god should we be sitting or should we not all have our refillables how do we start to change people's behaviors because i noticed you have your refillable i do i do um so you know a little information is a dangerous thing and telling people they're bad and what they should do as I say I think is a bad thing people disengage I think we need to give people correct and accurate knowledge and we need to give them choice. I mean, a shameless plug for a Pure, for example. If you go into a Pure now, you'll see they've got their blue filter points uh, where you can refill your refillable. If you forgot your refillable, you can buy a blue refillable. Um, if actually you need a natural product or you want a sparkling product, you can buy um, your blue in a, in a recycled plastic bottle made from 100% recycled plastic. You know, it's it's resource that was there already. No fossil fuels and the raw materials there. So they giving their customers a choice and taking them on a journey and I think the the retailer the restaurant the hotel has got a huge role to play um because let's face it right life's really busy we've got a million things to worry about mm. none of us are perfect and when we don't get it right we don't want to be told that we're bad we want to be helped to be a little bit better mm. okay we're going to keep talking to Karen because I particularly want to talk to you about why water is important for women because it is a different story and we don't talk about it enough so we're going to ask Karen all about that next here on Badass Women's Out. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast.
Welcome back to Badass Women's RXL, where we're talking to Karen Lynch, CEO of Belly Water. Karen, Karen before the break, you said um, water is an issue for women and it's International Women's Day tomorrow. Surely water's an issue for all of us. It is, but it's more of an issue for women. So uh, to, to roll off a few stats first, just to remind us of this thing we take for granted... Actually, one in 10 people on this planet still don't have access to clean water to drink near their home, not even in their home, near their home. One in four people, so 25% of the world's population, don't have a toilet. In fact, I was looking today, two out of every five people on the planet don't have a place to wash their hands. You know, so given what's going on with coronavirus now, right now, uh, particularly interesting, I thought. But it's women who are affected most because when you go to uh, to those countries, um, and as I had the, the real privilege to go to Madagascar with WaterAid recently, um, you see communities and the difference having clean water makes. Because if they don't have clean water mm. close to home, it's the women who spend hours each day walking to collect water. Um, it's the women who spend hours each day boiling dirty water to try and make it a little bit safer. When the kids get sick and the family, because they do, it's the, the women who are looking after the kids. Um, they, it's a real tricky thing to find somewhere to go to the toilet if you're, if, if you're a woman. You know, it's easier most of the time, not all the time if, if you're a chap. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to the issue of young girls, you know, if there's no water in the school, then they can't go to school when they have their periods. Um, or one of the most moving things you'll see if you go out to see a pre-intervention community uh, with water aid is imagine giving birth in a hospital mm. with no clean water. Wow. You know, so just a few examples that you can just imagine how, I mean, yeah. the, the hairs on my arms mm, are standing up now when you see that and you just, you know, my little girl which is not little anymore she's 26 is you know just imagine what it would be like you know in that situation to not be able to take the most basic care of your family um and of course when all of that changes and you bring clean water to a community and i've been you know thrilled to be able to see that too you start to get healthy happy communities with time to start building lives building you know their businesses whether they go into sewing or keeping some chickens um, and it's just the most simple thing that we don't think about. Every time we turn on that tap at home, we take it for granted. What's the sort of impact that you know, um, Blue Water's had over the past 10 years? So you're giving your profits to WaterAid, is that right? That's right. And then, yeah, what, like, do you have stats in terms of what you've achieved over the last we, 10 years? We do. For the last nine years, we announced on yeah. World Water Day the, um, the, the next year. So we're a tiny team, and I guess this is mm. the point. Anyone could start a business and make a big difference. There are 10 of us. There were nine last year. Um, and last year alone, uh, we handed over a million pounds to WaterAid. Really? Um, so the business has grown and become more profitable. So uh, up until March last year, the figure was just over four million in total. And that transforms over 270,000 lives. Now, I, I can't imagine what 270,000 people look like, but I guess football pitches, you know, full, full of people. Um, so, yeah, and, and there are 10 of us, you know, and so imagine if you had a business that grew to be, you know, 100 and that multiplied by 10. And, and, and so we're, we're not the biggest water brand, but I think in terms of making a positive difference on the planet, we would claim to be the best, definitely. Yeah. And so what are the things that you know now that other businesses can apply to their business? Because there'll be people sitting at home going, OK, but, it, you know, they've been doing it for 10 years and it's not going to be that easy for me to figure out how to do it. What are the three things that a business can do? So firstly, I'd say there's something everybody in every business can do, right? You don't have to own or run a business. You could go to back to your workplace tomorrow and talk about this idea of social enterprise. So what social enterprises could your the big business you work for do business with? Is it, you know, where you buy your catering or your water or your cleaning services or your lighting services? Mm. There's a social 
social enterprise in almost every area of business that can help you run your business. And by changing the way you spend the funds from your business, then you're part of that impact too. Secondly, um, I think the time has come to move on from thinking straightforward, what we used to call CSR, mm. you know, you know, having fundraising days or doing things, you know, to, to help. Actually thinking a bit more strategically. Um, I love this idea of entrepreneurs, you know, so you might want to be an entrepreneur and start your own business, but you can get inside where you work already and be a little bit disruptive. And Because it's really hard, isn't it, if you come up with an idea and say, wouldn't it be great if we did this? And actually, this would make our business better and we would all feel good. It's really hard to get a no. And if you do get a no, as Natalie would say, go and ignore them and find somebody else who would who would say yes. Um, so, you know, if you're a restaurant hotel um, or you're a customer of uh, a restaurant or hotel, tell them if they haven't got blue, you know, why are they importing water or why haven't they got blue? Because through a simple change, as you said at the start of, of a choice of brand, you can make good happen in the world. Do you think that we are living in a time now where potentially we can start to undo or reverse some of the damage that we've done to our planet because when I when we look at kind of climate change and when we look at things like oceans rising it feels like it's almost unstoppable but do you think actually the kind of upswell of knowledge and understanding in this area means that we will change it? So we've got to. There's no plan B, is there? Plan A is we have to acknowledge we're in a climate emergency and do something about it. Um, And not leave it till tomorrow, not leave it to somebody else, and everybody has to do their bit. Mm. But really, really important that when you think you're doing your bit, you're not actually creating unintended consequences. So this was the bit I said earlier about if you switch a a plastic, particularly a recycled plastic bottle for a can, it's got three to four times the carbon footprint. So hang on a minute. You might have ticked the box if you're not with plastic, but you're, you're ruining the planet another way. Get a glass, get a refillable <laughs> bottle, go to the tap. I mean, it is great to be able to work for a water brand that, you know, we can happily say, you know, all of the stakeholders internally will, are happy for us to say, please don't buy a bottle of water, but when you do, please buy blue. And I think that's really, really refreshing. And that's why we purposely look across the piece to everything a business might want. So we're not championing one thing over the other. Um, But that was tricky for us when we came to the world got excited about cans. And we spent a lot of time going, we could make more money and we could transform more lives like the people I talked about earlier, if we did cans. And so for most businesses, it's the obvious thing to do. But when we looked at all of the carbon emissions and then really understood the facts around PET, specific type of plastic that can bottles remade into bottles, the right thing to do for us is to encourage people to use filtration, be happy for them to use the tap and they're refillable. But actually, we can't at any point imply as a brand that a can is going to be better than a plastic bottle because they would trust us to do that. Yeah. Uh, and and therefore, we didn't. It was a really tough decision, right? When you've stood in communities where, you know, every 15 pounds you make can transform a life long term, it was a really hard decision as exec to make that but absolutely from an environmental perspective the right thing to do and as chief exec what will you miss <laughs> <laughs> oh what won't i miss are the things you're supposed to ask me um it has been the best job i mean god the toughest job i mean 13 years in media and working and banking were nothing compared to this because it's emotional not just 
practical, you know, there's so much purpose. Um, but I think the bit that I've learned is, you know, my motto is, is find out what you're good at, do something good with it. Mm-hmm. And along the way at Baloo, I and the team have had great fun mentoring other smaller social enterprises and other businesses or, or getting involved in bigger businesses that we've worked with to help them think differently and do better. Um, so I think I think I'll miss the, the, the platform, I think, that Baloo gives you to be able to speak, but we can share it a little bit. You know, I'll be supporting <laughs> from the wings and, you know, and go, Nat, you haven't talked about this yet um you know i will the the thing that will make me most proud is to see this business go on and be more successful without me because i think that's one of the one of the things we struggle with in social enterprise people often look at the leader and go ah that's that's cressy's business elvis and cressy or that's joanna's business due to shoes and and i think we need to prove that this is a brilliant business model that's sustainable as a model with the right people but without any single leader to do that and therefore it's absolutely time for me to move on have a holiday enjoy the holiday Karen thank you so much for coming in and joining us it's been lovely listening to you and just the amount of kind of inspiration and excitement you bring to it Karen Lynch CEO of Bellingwater You might not know this, but every month over 100 million girls and women in war zones, refugee camps and poor communities suffer from not being able to access sanitary products. I was kind of shocked at that 100 million, but when you think that's worldwide, um, you can understand how those numbers add up. Well, one woman has set out to change that. Amy Peake uh, started Loving Humanity, which works, works along the, alongside the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and the Norwegian Refugee Council to help women in war zones, refugee camps, actually access those products. Amy, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Thank you. Hi. Um, how did you go from Pilates instructor to entrepreneur, activist, helping women in war zones? Um, I was trying to mind my own business. <laughs> um, I was sitting in my doctor's surgery and I saw a photograph of 18,000 people queuing for food and in the foreground was a woman. And for the first time I thought, oh my goodness, what if that was me there with my kids? And it went from how do you cope with being a mother to, oh my goodness, actually how do you cope once a month? And all the streets were bombed out, there were no shops. So it was like a thunderbolt. And you had this for Thunderbolt, mm. and then most people have that, and then they go away, yeah. and their life gets going again, and yeah. they just go back to normal, and nothing changes. <laughs> I think I probably had um, a moment of, am I going to step up and do something about this, or am I just going to carry on? And I don't think I could have lived with myself if I just carried on. It literally sounds like you had an existential crisis sitting right there, though. <laughs> Because Harry is right, you know, I think lots of people have those moments multiple times in a month or in their lives where they go, wow, something terrible is going on in the world and I really want to do something about it. And then the phone rings or the doorbell goes. And the difference is, is that have a saying you're going to do something and then doing the research and then making the calls and then making it happen. So I'm I really how did you go from the. I must act to putting bits in, yeah, in place like, to then make it happen. Because it's not even like you were saying, I want, I'm going to do something at a local school. You're like, I'm going to go and help in a war zone. Yeah, and I want to know what your first step was. Yeah. Because I... Who do you know, call? I yeah, who do you call? <laughs> I'm just going to call the UN. Yeah. UN? You're like, what do you do? It was so Google. nice if it was like, <laughs> what was the first thing you did? Um, 
I tried to do research. I tried to call agencies and no one would talk to me because I was by myself. Um, And that was quite a shock, actually. Um, I thought that at the age of 40, people might have been graceful enough to just listen or answer a question. And it wasn't like that. I found stuff online, reports talking about, um, you know, 10 million displaced people. And so if 5 million were there, women, I knew there would be a problem. So um, I just did something really crazy and booked an aeroplane ticket to I Jordan. Knew did you were going to say that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say, I just got on a plane. <laughs> I did, I just got on a plane. <laughs> I did. I said to my wow. husband, we need to look at the diary. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? Was he like, are you okay, hun? <laughs> uh, well, we both had that moment. <laughs> going. Um, he was he was great. And it, and it was a matter of, you know, it, it was a thing of like, let's get over this fear let's just do it and um and at that stage it was research and so I so I did and then I collected loads of baby grows in my local community and found a woman online who would help distribute them the other end and it was through her that I eventually ended up in the refugee camp and when you got to the refugee camp what did you see what did you imagine and what Mm. was the reality well it was the first time after six months of of research I actually got to speak to a group of women and find out how Mm. they were coping and that was um, very exciting on the one hand and very shocking on the other because just after the war started, there were 140,000 people living in this camp. And sitting next to me was a young woman who had a small baby. And I said, well, you know, how did you give birth? And she said, well, I just screamed and my neighbour came from the next door tent. And in terms of periods, they were using tissue or whatever they could get their hands on. At that stage, there was there was a very... Um, intermittent distribution of pads but the quality is shocking it's kind of like plastic Um, and so they were getting horrendous infections and using the money they were given by um, the United Nations to go and then buy medication outside the camp so it was it was a really shocking place you know I had um, you know it's it's just shocking it's hopeless and these people are never going to go home because their homes have been destroyed and these women are um, the the women I've been working with were the female heads of households so Mm. they were responsible for 80 people between like 13 of them it was amazing and so you saw what was happening you saw the problem but you're not a manufacturer you're not somebody who has a sanitary pad company that could just ship them in what was your next step? Uh, I went to India to meet a man who'd invented a low-cost sanitary tar machine. Yeah. And I spent time with Mr Maruga and learnt about um, his machine, manufacturing raw materials, came back to Jordan, worked with the UN again. Sadly, his machine wasn't the solution and, and then I went back to India and met somebody else who mm-hmm. had a better solution. And... Um, And then in 2016, we opened um, not only a sanitary pad factory, but a nappy nappy factory, a washable nappy factory to deal with um, trauma that I was told about in the camp with the kids. Um, So, yeah, I just flew around a lot and just went, I don't know what I'm doing. Can someone help me, please? But this is what I want to do. so, but we we know we we all run projects. Yeah. We know it's not that, that easy <laughs> or, or that easy. So, tell us about some of the stumbling blocks and hurdles that you faced on that journey. Um, learning about manufacturing was challenging. When I came back from India, I was only given samples of the raw materials, and they're just white, mm. um, not not a name, not a weight of material. So, I sent stuff off to laboratories saying, "What is this?" and you know. Some of the women didn't like the size of pads we were going to make, having done lots of research. So I then ended up in trade shows in Geneva, um, finding new European suppliers, trying to find manufacturers of machines that would do the same job. And yeah, I just by accident, slightly overnight, became a sanitary pad manufacturer for super poor women in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> 
how long is this? How long yeah. is this journey from the the time that you you saw that um, the poster yeah. to the time when you've kind of got your first factory up and running successfully? Because it sounds like you've done a lot of like test and learn, test and learn. Um, how long? How long was that journey? Mm. Um, that took two years. Okay, mm-hmm. so I saw the photograph in January or actually maybe March, April 2014, and our first factory opened in December 2016. And how did you fund this? Um, So the person, the journalist who wrote about Mr Maruga, um, Mm. basically made him very famous. He, he, you know, the story went viral. He's, you know, now super, super famous. Um, And and his machine wasn't... um, ticking all the boxes and people got in touch with her saying this isn't actually such a fabulous solution so eventually she found me and um then they Vibika Venema did this most incredible online article and then I was on the world service and women's hour and uh, people gave us a hundred thousand pounds in a month and that allowed us to do the nappy factory and the sanitary pad factory and now we're on our knees so yeah, now we need some help. <laughs> that's that's the cycle of, of of doing good, right? Where you are in a test and learn. It's the thing if you tell the story and everyone goes, Yes, we get it, we want to back you. You get the money and you make something happen, you make it all happen and then the bank's empty and then you start the process all over again. And so what is it that you need and what is it that the the women need? going forward because obviously the nature of war is also changing and where these camps are changing and you want to set up 25 factories so talk us through the journey of where you're now going well um in a nutshell we developed our own our own factory and um, we're about to set up a hub in nairobi we already have a a factory in the biggest slum there Mm. uh, which is really amazing because um absenteeism in school is already falling massively and we're, we're talking to the Ministry of um, Health in Kenya to to get tax exemptions into Kenya to create a hub so we can have lots of satellite factories in the slum off one, one centre to help so many more thousands of women. And equally, we've got a ship, um, a factory on a ship going to Iraq. So in a couple of weeks, I'll go to Iraq to set up a, a, a factory in an internally displaced people's camp. But But basically... At the end of last year, I went to the slum in Kenya and saw the scale of the problem. And I tell you, it is so shocking seeing it, you know, face to face. And um, so we're we're looking for 5,000 people to give us five quid a month. Mm. And it's amazing how the little bits of money just add up and suddenly we can do stuff. And it's really difficult being a small charity trying to get the attention of the big boys. Um, And so it's lovely. Women relate. You know, I don't even have to explain it. They just go, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought of that. And men are amazing, too. It's really sweet how they want to provide, especially men with daughters or wives, which is most of them, you know. And so um, it's really humbling seeing people wanting to do something good. And what's your goal? Because you've got a sort of staggering thing you want to achieve. When I saw it, I was like, 25 factories worldwide? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it's really super achievable. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to stop at 25 either. Yeah. Um, you know, our factories are so simple. It's a bit like, it's a bit like Blue Peter, cutting yeah. and pasting. Um, and we, we employ six women at a time. So once we have hubs in these African countries, we can really roll it out. 
I, mean, I, I love how you're just like, yeah. well, no, it's, it's just not that complicated. It's not that complicated. We just need this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and that's it. I'm like, I need to bottle you and like have just yeah. just have you around when I'm when I'm trying to to work through a problem. But and as, as soon as you yeah. said, well, well, we're not going to stop there. I totally believed you. I was like, yeah, yeah. okay, world domination. Fair and so okay, yeah, no yeah, fine, great. Five thousand women, five pounds. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I just believe you. Yeah, I believe Where myself, it, which is yeah. crazy. Where does it come from? I mean, what were you doing before this? How, how did you get to? I was being a mother. I, I, um, do you know what? Some crazy thing happened when I was 18. I wanted to change the world. Right. I think maybe right. like most idealistic 18 year olds. And I didn't know how that was going to look. Mm. And I really wanted to be a mother. That was my big thing. I studied law, but I didn't want anything to get in the way of being mm. a mother. And, and now having been a mother or being a mother, I'm like, I don't think there's a more difficult job in the entire world. And I am in awe of the women I meet who mm. have lost everything. Like they've, they've experienced death, trauma. They live without anything. When I was working in Jordan, I was having um, breakfast with these ladies. They put on the most incredible banquet. You wouldn't believe you're in a refugee camp. And I said to them, you know, how do you cope? And they said, well, we're mothers. We've got kids. And I'm like, I get that. But actually, how do you cope? Mm. Do you know what? In unison, about 20 women turned around to me and said, we love life. Mm. I was just like, OK, I'm ready to go home now. I mean, <sighs> humble pie. Mm. You know, we don't need anything physical. We need to be spiritually really peaceful and happy. And if you have your life when you've seen others die, mm. I think that's enough. I think to know that they're safe and even though where they're sleeping or their lives are so limited, they're alive. Mm. And in that, you know, is a huge amount of magic, isn't there? Yeah. So it's kind of humbling, really. Amy, I think you're wow. incredible. Yeah. Wonder <laughs> Woman. We've all just decided we're a little bit in love with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Harry, like, Harry Can you tell my husband this, this, that sound? That sound where we're like, we have, we're we girl crushing right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we've got a girl crush on you because, like, badass women's women's out. We're like, what a cool name. Amy, if people want to know more about Love Humanity, what you do, how they can help, where should they look? Uh, you can go onto our website, which is lovinghumanity.org.uk, and there's a donate button. It takes through, you through to a PayPal page, and there's a tiny little box that you have to tick for a recurring payment. And that will honestly help us change the lives of thousands more girls and women. Okay. I really hope we can help you do that. Thank you so yeah. much for coming and chatting to us about it. Absolutely incredible. And we've got another incredible woman coming up who survived falling 25 feet and lying in the desert with a broken pelvis for four days. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that? You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. We will be back after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had moments in my day-to-day life where I've thought, you know what, I need to junk it all in and go off on an epic adventure and change my life. (laughs) And our next guest had that exact thought and took herself off on an epic adventure and it didn't go quite as she expected. Claire Nelson, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Thank you very much for having me. It's fabulous to have you here. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell us, you were in your 30s, living in London, had a hectic life, set the scene for us. What was life like before you decided to head off on your adventure? Well, to, from the outside, my life looked amazing. I was working for a food magazine. I was living in London. I was doing freelance writing. I was doing everything that I had dreamed of doing. Um, but on the inside, I felt really lost, really empty. And I felt guilty about that because I thought I should just be really happy and feel fulfilled. And I didn't. And so I was fighting off this guilt and this sort of and then slowly isolating myself rather than admitting the way I was feeling to anybody, I just sort of started to hide myself away. And I think you, do you think you were going through a kind of burnout phase, which I, I think happens to a lot of us? I think yeah. so, yeah. I'd, I'd been living in London for 13 years and running that treadmill that I think so many of us are used to running. And, you know, you, you almost get used to feeling exhausted all the time um, and to the point when you you actually just can't deal with it anymore. Yeah. And so... What did you decide? Well, I was going to sleep at night and um, I was picturing great expansive wilderness. So um, <laughs> I decided I would move to Canada. <laughs> As you do. As you do, yeah. I mean, Harry and Meghan taking in, following in your footsteps. I so. know, I think I've started a trend now. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened from there? Well, um, I was going to spend a few months travelling around Canada um, um and then while I was on my travels, some old friends of mine who had moved to Joshua Tree in California said, hey, I hear you're traveling. Do you want to come down and house sit for us while we're away for three weeks? And I was like, yes, the desert, 100%. <laughs> I'm there. Count me in. So there I went. So off you went. Yeah. And Joshua Tree, like the desert is notoriously kind of beautiful and wild. Mm-hmm. It is proper wilderness. I think it's sort of consider some of the oldest trees in the world is that right it's yeah i mean it's it's an incredible landscape and just the national park i mean the whole area is vast but even the national park itself is twice the size of greater london if you can imagine that and it's just desert um there's valleys and hills and and it it just changes every way you look at it i was gonna say just to set the scene yeah did you go alone yeah i went hiking by myself everybody don't (laughs) I mean, I, I actually, I'm not going to say don't do it. I, I still hike by myself. Um, How do you watch Wild? Is this what <laughs> yeah. inspired it? No, um, I, I had I had read Wild um, <laughs> and loved it. But no, I, I always hike by myself. It's I'm a very solitary person. And particularly, I think, in the position, the, the stage I got to in life where I was definitely becoming more solitary, 
it just felt really natural. Um, and it was one of those things where if I go into the wilderness hiking alone, it was a chance for me to kind of just be present and be calm and escape all of the other things that, you know, I'm feeling stressed amongst all the crowds of London. And you're quite an experienced hiker. I I always, I've hiked for years and years and years. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love, I love it. But what did you have in your backpack? Ooh, I just, I just want to set the scene yeah, before no, we no, get no. into the big thing. What did you have in your backpack? Well, did you have wine? That's what I took when I went for a long walk. <laughs> no, that probably would have been a good idea. Um, no, I had, uh, I just had a packed lunch, um, some sunscreen. I had a t-shirt. Um, I took my hiking stick and my digital camera, and off I went. And you fell over. Well, yeah, I, I, well, the thing was I had checked in, in to find out what was going on with the trail, what I should expect, and they said there'd be some scrambling, so climbing over rocks. So when the trail came to this big stack of boulders, I thought nothing of climbing over the top of it. I didn't know at that point I, was, I had gone a mile off the trail at some point, so I wasn't even on the trail. I was just rambling through the wilderness. So I climbed the top of the rocks, and then I slipped and lost my footing. And you fell how far? 25 feet. Yeah, so so I've been told and um, hit the ground and shattered my pelvis. And um, people have asked me, how did you know you shattered your pelvis? Well, believe me, if you do it, you know. (laughs) It feels, you can feel it, you can feel things moving around. And also I physically couldn't move anything from the waist down. I couldn't sit up, I couldn't get up my elbows. I was flat on my back and there's just nothing I could do to move. So just, I just want to go back. You can feel it moving around. Yeah, if I try to, so if I try to like you know move my upper body, and, and it, the bones in the in the side of my pelvis are kind of jangling is the only <gasps> word I can think of. It they're kind of yeah, like I, I describe it. It's like a like pieces of a broken plate. You must have been in so much pain. It, it was. It's a, it's so excruciating. It's one of those things where it's very hard for me to remember the pain now. Like we're designed to block mm, it. Yeah. If we didn't, then no, no one would ever give birth more than once. It's <laughs> um, so scientifically true. We're designed to block that kind of pain. Mm. So it, it's um, yeah, it was excruciating, and so I was kind of like locked in this position. So to set the scene, yeah. you were like, oh. I'm going to go for a hike in California. It'll be lovely. Yeah. I'm experienced. I'm going to go alone, like my own company. Yeah. Think I'm on the trail. Got a little backpack, little pack lunch. Yeah. Climb some boulders, fall down, wake up, broken pelvis. Yeah. How long were you there for? Four days. Four days and three nights. And uh, they were very long, long days and long nights. What was going through your mind? So when you first fell, mm. presumably it's pain. Mm-hmm. What happens then? Then it's realising the situation that I was in, that obviously I hadn't told anyone where I was going. Uh, big mistake. I didn't have any phone signal, uh, so I couldn't call for help. And it's sort of the reality of that uh, situation that I was in just came and hit me harder and harder and harder. And then I had to sort of ignore any feelings of, oh, I'm, I'm going to die here, and then just shift into sort of what can I do to survive and stay alive. And what did you do? Well, I tried to ration my water. I didn't manage to do that, so then I had to drink urine to stay alive and um, I made a sunshade out of my hiking stick in a plastic bag to keep the sun off me and used my hiking stick to apply sunscreen to my legs as well. The heat was awful so you just yeah. need to do whatever you can to get it off you. What was your, what was your mindset like? Because had you, had you resided to the fact that you were probably just going to die there? Because, or did you, were you hopeful that you'd be rescued? I, I felt both of those things right. very early on and I decided that I was just going to stick with the hope as long as I could yeah. because I, I do believe that the mind and body are so much a part of each other that if you start giving up mentally, your body will follow. So I just had to hold on to whatever little strands of hope that I could and um, and I think by the third night, though, I had started to 
become a bit more realistic about things and just kind of accept that this is, you know, this was going to be it. And were there kind of wildlife? Like, <laughs> I mean, I know you're in the desert, but I'm like, there's some things that can live out in the desert. There's like, a lot yeah, in the desert. Ex- yeah. But you put it together like wildlife, like like a bird. No, you mean wildlife, <laughs> like the lion, <laughs> the mountain lion thing, <laughs> a bear, yeah. snakes. Yeah. snakes. Yeah. I don't know, just things. Even those ants that want to like oh, bite, gosh. you know? Like, yeah. I don't know why the creepy crawlies freak me out even more, but um, <laughs> there are mountain lions out there, but there's also coyotes and uh, it was middle of rattlesnake season. That was oh, the one I was particularly, being ground level, that was the one I was mostly worried about. Um, I didn't see anything that was dangerous. And to this day, I don't, I, um, I feel like it's a miracle that I didn't. Um, I'd seen a coyote on my drive in that morning, like the things were around. Mm. Um, so I saw a lot of harmless creatures that came to sort of visit me because I wasn't moving and I was clearly no threat to them. So I had a hummingbird and I saw a lizard and... Yeah, but the only thing I did, I did see that freaked me out were the hawks. They were just circling me every day oh, wow. over the top. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty menacing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you, are, you are here with us today. Uh, yeah. So, obviously, you were rescued. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that, um, so, as I say, the last night, the third night, I accepted the fact that this is it for me. I'm going to die here. And so the last, uh, that fourth day, I was really weak. My body started to kind of wind down. I was so dehydrated, in so much pain. And I was in and out of consciousness. And then I heard a helicopter flying over. And they made an announcement to say, you know, we're looking for a hiker. And I that I had suddenly had all this energy come back to me again. And I, I was determined to get their attention um, and they flew over three times before they actually saw me. I knew there was no way they would see me where I was. I was sort of buried and all, you know, sort of swallowed up beneath all the around. Sorry, they were surrounded by all these big boulders. Um, but the very last flyover, and they were actually on their way out of the desert at this point. They saw something, the, my, my hiking stick waving and moving and uh, got oh the binoculars out and said, oh, wow. we see her. How did they know to look for you? So my friends who I was house-sitting for... They um, they noticed I was a bit quiet on Instagram, which is yeah really embarrassing. But um, I re- think I'd reached the point with my being really solitary and sort of isolated. That that was the way. That was my main means of people yeah. sort of knowing I existed was Instagram, which is sad but true. And um, and so they kind of went. A few people were like, "Oh, she's really quiet on Instagram. It's not like her." But most people thought, "Well, she's just independent. She's yeah. just doing her thing." But the friends I was house sitting for, she. She had a funny feeling. She said, something's not right. So she started to follow up on that and it just built from there. Friends went round to the house to see if I was there. I wasn't there. The car wasn't there. They um, they spoke to search and rescue and they went and found my car at the trailhead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it was really just down to these tiny little things. Um, that's why I'm still sitting here talking to you guys. So, so, so now, so you, in, in writing the book and in, mm. in hindsight, do you think they're tiny little things or do you think the universe conspired to make everything happen that happened? Because y- you are sitting here, you have written a book and there are lots of lessons in this book because it says things I've learned from falling. So I'm hoping there are lessons in here. <laughs> I'm hoping we find lessons in there as well. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm a big believer in the universe and that mm. sometimes it sends you messages. Um, and I don't know whether it's because I'm always looking for signs or whether there genuinely are signs there. I mean, I keep an open mind to that. Um, but they were, t- they were tiny little things and maybe those were just, they were from the universe. Mm. I don't know, whatever way you want to look at it. Um, but it, it just it's crazy to think 
how if one of those little things hadn't happened, then the rest, just, mm. like none of it would have happened. It just blows my mind. Okay, we are going to keep talking to Claire Nelson okay. here on Badass from Zara, finding out a little bit more about what you do indeed learn from falling. One, two, three, four! Welcome back to Badass Women's RXL. We are talking to Claire Nelson, author of The Things I Learned From Falling, all about what she learned from falling 25 feet in the desert. <laughs> Claire, so you are rescued from this incredible fall. You are brought back. You go into recovery, presumably. Tell us a little bit about the recovery process and then what happened afterwards. Sure. Um, so I had my broken pelvis. I had to have surgery to put some big, big pins in there. Um, it took months for me to be able to stand again and then sort of I had to kind of slowly relearn to walk, putting weight on my leg. Um, I spent, you know, months in a wheelchair. My mum had to fly over to Northern, Northern excuse me, North America, to, <laughs> from New Zealand to look after me um, until I was able to fly back to New Zealand. So it was a, it was a long, very slow and very frustrating process, but um, but very much necessary Um for me to heal physically. And then why did you decide to write a book about it? Well, I'm a writer anyway, so I think it was always going to happen. I would want to write it down. Um, but I was surprised how many people were approaching me and saying, gosh, I'd love to, you know, this should be a book. I want to read more about this. You know, I want to know more about the story. And they had all these questions. So it kind of started to come together. But also I, I had always wanted to write a book about the things I was feeling before I even left uh, for this trip. And I realised there were always crazy parallels between them in terms of I was feeling isolated. I wasn't very good at asking for help from people or needing others. And then I find myself physically in this position where I'm so isolated. I need others. I need to rely on them. And I can't ask them for help. And so I felt that's where there were so many lessons to be learned across both of those experiences. You couldn't ask them for help, but they were mobilising to help you anyway. So there's also a really interesting thing about that, that even when you don't ask for help, your truest friends sense that you need it anyway and they do what needs to be done to get you what you need. That's really true. And, and I think there's a lesson in that in terms of allowing people to help you because mm. people do, they want to help you. They want to feel needed. They want to, have, they want to be let in. Does mm. this, I mean, I, I look at this and I go, this must be a life-changing event. Has it been a life-changing event? Oh, 100%. 100%. It's, um, I mean, I am, it's not like I've become a different person. Like I've walked out of the desert completely <laughs> changed. But it, it, it's just given me so much, um, so much more strength. Uh, and it, it does sound really cheesy, but, but I'm not going to worry about that. It, um, before I left, I, everything that was um, holding me back in life really came down to being afraid of things, being full of fear, being worried about, you know, how people saw me or how, I, you know, am I doing things right? You know, am I allowed to be here? And, and when I, so those four days I was out there was the only regret I could really pinpoint when I looked back was that I'd spent so much time being afraid and being worried about this stuff. It didn't matter. So now I'm in a position where I can use that and be reminded of that so that when I feel, you know, anxious about things and when I talk myself out of things and feel full of self-doubt, um, I, I can kind of take back control of the fear. So it's interesting that you you still feel all those things mm. that you mm. felt before the event, yeah. but that that moment has given you some perspective. Because it's interesting, because I think sometimes when people talk about these life-changing events and how their mindset or their approach to life has changed, and I've just assumed that 
all that stuff has changed. So it's yeah. interesting that you're saying, actually, no, I still have those same thoughts, but I just yeah. have a, a... I don't listen to those thoughts. I don't have that perspective on those thoughts. Exactly. I don't let those thoughts control me. I can yeah. I remind myself that I can control them. Like, I... You know, so much of that stuff, it is fear and it's a perfectly valid feeling to have. And I think it's important. I want people to know that I'm not suddenly immune to that. Um, and you don't have to go and nearly die in a desert to become immune to that. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I really want to make stress that point. But um, but definitely it's not real. It's not the, the source of the fear, the reasons, the things that we're afraid of aren't necessarily real or they're not big enough to control us and we can actually take back control of them and overcome them. And so how long was it from your recovery to you uh, making an assumption here, going back into the desert <laughs> and walking alone? Because I feel like you did. It's like you, you know me. Yeah. Um, I did. I did go back. It was um, I, as soon as I realised I was going to recover and live, I, want, I knew I wanted to go back and finish it. I, it was it's partly closure, partly just that's just the sort of person I am that that was calling to me and it helped motivate me in my recovery to make sure that I didn't rush things that I I did recover properly I did get my strength back and that would be my reward and so I went back the following January mm. 2019 um, with some friends um, and we walked finished the trail and went all the way to the end where there's this amazing oasis of palm trees just hidden in the valley that was incredible mm. I love this. So you went with friends instead. So again, yeah. it's the full circle of uh, the first time I needed to go alone, and this time I did it with absolutely, my absolutely, yeah. It was it was magic. Yeah. Are you still? I mean, you obviously are still a hiker, but what do you do differently now? Because mm. there's a bit in the book which is tips for hikers, mm -hmm. right? So, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I definitely tell someone where I'm going every time. Um, either it's in my mama text or a friend, um, and I just say. I'm doing this hike. If I'm not back by this time, then you should be worried. <laughs> and people take it seriously now. And it makes me happy that my friends now who hike also do the same because it's easy to become very complacent. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a big movement, certainly in the UK, that I've noticed around women who hike. Mm -hmm. And it's actually this kind of liberating thing of being able just to put on a pair of boots and go be by yourself somewhere beautiful in nature. But I guess there are some things that we should all know before we just pull on our boots and disappear out into the... Wilderness, yeah? Yeah. Take yeah. some compede. Yeah. Take some compede, <laughs> exactly. number one. Don't take wine because you won't drink it. You'll be in so much pain. <laughs> well, it might help numb the pain, but it won't hydrate very well. Um, I mean, I think for anyone who goes into the wilderness, and not necessarily just hiking alone, I think we, you know, if you do it enough as well, you, you think, well, I'm confident, I'm in my my comfort zone. You know, you, you forget that there are risks involved. And it's just about just taking precautions. That it doesn't mean that you're... Uh, you know, more like, you know, you're more of a klutz, so you need to tell people. You're doing it because you are experienced and you are confident in what you're doing and you know there are risks. And, um, yeah, and I, I just think, it's, it's you know, you send one person a text, it could be the most important text you ever send. So now you've got back up from falling. Yeah. <laughs> what do you know for sure about life? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I think really just that most of the fears that we... Uh, let stop us do the things we want in life are a waste of time. Mm. They really are. And um, they just, they come from us. They don't come from anything that's real. Um, that really has been the most profound realisation that I've had from all of this. And uh, I, I really hope that other people can find some value in that. Claire, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Your Pleasure. book, Things I Learned From Falling, is out now. Um, and it's just, we've heard the story. It's incredible. So if you want all the details in the book, please go buy it. 
the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. We are lucky to be joined by Christy Lefteri, the author of international bestseller, The Beekeeper of Aleppo. You can't have failed mm. to see this book. It's been everywhere. Christy, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, for anyone who hasn't read the book, give them a little pricey of the story. So, um, husband and wife, Afra Nura Nuri, um, they're from Aleppo. They've just lost their son and Afra's been blinded by the bomb that's killed him. And they have to make a really treacherous journey through Turkey and various parts of Greece in order to get to the UK. But it's if, even though it's an external journey, it's the story's really about the internal journey that they make and whether they can find themselves and each other again. And what was the inspiration? Because it's, it's an incredible story of how you came to really this book together yeah well I was um I was actually working as a volunteer in Athens um with refugees um I was working in a women and children's center uh women and children were coming from the camps so there were two main camps nearby Mm. one was at an old airport one was at the old school and the center where I worked was a safe place for women and children there was a tea and biscuits area an area for new mothers that had just given birth. So tiny babies that were either born on the journey or they were born in Athens. There was a play area for children and an area where people could have warm showers. And it was was literally, because it was a dropping centre, I was just whizzing around. I didn't really have much time to think. But I saw so many things. And in the evening, I heard so many stories because I wasn't asking anyone during Mm. the day what their stories were because we were really we were just there to kind of do you know we were in survival mode but in the evenings on Victoria Square I'd speak to people and I heard so many stories and saw so many things that stayed in my mind and often when I get overwhelmed with emotion my first instinct is to write Mm. so um that that's really what kind of got the idea going how do, do you feel a level of responsibility to tell these stories accurately or truthfully or in a way that you think fully represents them? Because there was so much in the news about the kind of Syrian refugees and the refugee crisis and that kind of almost mass migration, particularly after Aleppo. And I feel like there was a lot of misinformation around that Mm. as well. So a lot of the response across Europe was about how many people do we let in, how many people do we keep out, and so on and so forth. So do you feel a responsibility to really show, the, I guess, the human side? Do you know what it is? I think when we're reading, because before Mm. I went to Athens, when I watched this stuff on the news, I felt a bit detached from it, even though I didn't realise I was feeling detached from it. I didn't realise that detachment existed until I actually got to Athens. Mm. And the reason I went to Athens in the first place, because my parents were refugees um, after the war in Cyprus in 1974. And I'd gone to visit my dad and I was sitting on the shore and looking out across the water because he lives on the far east side of Syria, uh, Cyprus that faces Syria. And so I had this kind of I was compelled to go. And when I finally got there, I realised that what I'd seen on TV and what I'd read didn't... It it was nothing compared to Mm. looking at someone in the eyes, Mm. playing with a child, feeling the trauma that they might have been through 
even even if you don't understand the language that they're speaking, you can feel it. You can mm. see even with the way that children are playing, they pl- they were playing differently. Then, as they as they spent more time at the centre and relaxed a little bit, they they started to play differently. You know, it was things little things like this. So I think when I first started writing the novel, I didn't think, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna write it because I have this intention or that intention. I just wrote it because of all the stuff that was bubbling up inside mm. me, because of my own parents' stories. And, you know, and I create a character's Nuri and Afra completely fictional. But I think what was important to me and what I realise now is that when you're writing a story, is that there's that intimacy mm. between the reader and the characters and you live with them for a while. You know, when I open a book and I read it, I live with those characters for a while and I get to see what's in their heart, what's in their mind and... You know, and I care about them, and it's something that doesn't happen when we hear statistics and we hear we see crisis imagery and we hear kind of generalized generalized information about refugees and thousands of people crossing mm-hmm. the sea. It's difficult to empathize with huge groups of people. It's different when it's when we're intimate with those characters. So I think that's it wasn't my intention mm-hmm. when I started to write, but that's mm-hmm. what's important to me now. And what at what stage did you then know it was going to become a novel? And at, at which stage did you start to sort of bring it together and think think about a conclusion? Because it does feel like it sort of just bubbled up naturally from yeah. a place of inspiration. Yeah, it did. Um, I think so after 2016, when I came back from the centre, I knew I wanted to go back the... Pre, uh, following year so I started to learn Arabic for a year mm-hmm. and the Arabic tutor that I found um Ibrahim he was also from he was from Aleppo mm-hmm. and we were doing I told him that I'd started writing so what happened was we were meeting at Euston station once a week for an hour and a half we did 45 minutes of Arabic and 45 minutes of me reading the manuscript that I was writing mm-hmm. to him and sometimes I wanted to give up and he was like he was, you know, because it was difficult for him to hear what I was writing as well. And so he'd, he'd just say to me, no, just carry on. Mm. Um, and as I, uh, you know, as the weeks went on, I realised that it was coming together as a story. And it was really difficult for me to write the bits in Syria because I couldn't go to Syria. Mm. I knew I was going to go back to Athens the following year, but I just couldn't go back to Syria because it was too dangerous. So with Ibrahim, we sat there and he said... Right, so where do you want your characters to get to? And I said, from Aleppo to the Turkish border here. So we got everything up on the maps and he was, we we kind of went through it road by road, street by street. And I was asking him, well, what are the trees like here? What 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 are the flowers like? Mm, um, the dust storms, like we, uh, we get in Cyprus, we get dust storms from Syria. So I could kind of relate to some of the things that he was talking about. And during that process, I thought well, I can see how this is coming together and I started to structure it and to mould it, mm. you know, which is the freedom that you have when you're writing a piece of fiction yeah. that, that you can actually think, well, how am I going to mould this? How am I going to bring it together um, to kind of... And, and the responsibility that you were talking mm. about before to, to present this in a really sensitive way that's not sensationalised as well. But at this point, did... You, you know, did you have a deal for the book or were you still... No. no. no and no, so no. this is the bit that I find really interesting mm. uh, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, but you know, then it became like a global, like, big hit. So you were just doing this organically, yeah. without a deal, without anything in mind, just going through a process. Yeah. 
But you knew you wanted to get it published, right? I was hoping. Mm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You always hope. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. but, you know, when you start off writing a novel it's, or anything, it's always a risk mm. because you don't know. And it's your first book? No, no. My first right. book was A Watermelon, A Fish and a Bible, which was um, about... It was Great set- titles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was set during the first eight days of the invasion of Cyprus in 1974. Mm. So you can see a thing. Yeah. Yeah. that's... Your parents are Cypriot refugees, right? exactly. Tell us a little bit about their story. Well, um, they both came over to London in 1974. My dad was a commanding officer during Mm. that war. So although both of my parents lost a lot during that war, I think my dad experienced a lot that left Mm. him quite traumatised. And um, so I feel that I was kind of brought up in the shadow of those traumas and in the shadow of that war. So it became part of who I was, you know, seeing my parents and their desire to integrate, um, the way that the stories of the war became silenced, the way that as a child, that you know, like when you silence something, it doesn't just go away, it kind of, it comes up in different ways. Mm-hmm. So as a child, you don't quite understand what those reactions are sometimes. And, you know, so um, it was something that I grew up with. So I think when I went to Athens and I saw people and they were they were refugees themselves, I couldn't help but imagining my mum and my dad and my grandma and my granddad and, you know, other members of my family. Um, and interestingly, when I finished writing this book, my dad, I remember because my dad's moved to Cyprus and he called me up and I was writing an article about transgenerational trauma. Mm. And he was asked, I went for a walk and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm writing this article. And he said, what's it about? And I told him. And he said to me, well, you know, um, I never spoke about the war because I wanted to protect you. And then for the first time, he began to tell me um, his memories about Mm. the war and people that he thought that he wanted to save and he couldn't Mm. and things that were going through his mind. And he said to me now, even now, about 40 years later, he still thinks about the war on a weekly basis. And I thought, well, imagine back then, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 39 now, imagine back then, mm. he must have been drowning in it. Mm. So that kind of stayed with me. So when I, I think that's what, that's what pushed me to want to go and do something. It was there, it was already in my own heart, mm-hmm. you know. What has it been like having, because we have authors on the show a lot and most of them are hoping that something is going to be a global bestseller. What is it when you create a book and you publish it and everyone goes, oh, that's lovely, and you tell your friends and family and they buy it and, you know, hopefully it does okay and and then you just go back to writing again. What's it like when something actually does spectacularly well? It's really weird. Like, when you're saying it, I'm like, really, is it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's just, it's a very weird kind of, you think people are talking about somebody else, you know. Did you think Oprah was talking about someone else when it was was on her book club? No, uh, Rich and Judy. But did Oprah, I'm pretty sure Oprah's mentioned it. Yeah, Oprah's mentioned it as well. It was on. If she has, that's used to me. So Rich and Judy are on their sofa. I definitely remember that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure there's an Oprah reference as well. Is there? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm going right, to say go Google it. Yeah, I'll yeah. Google it after. <laughs> um, but well, anyway, what 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 was it like? Well, 
with the Richard and Judy thing, yeah. which mm. I know about, um, I think because I used to watch them when I was when I was younger, mm. and I always used to think, wow, you know, that's amazing. So I think when they chose my book, I was just kind of shocked. You know, I mm. thought, wow, they've actually chosen my book. That's amazing. Which which is an amazing feeling as a writer. You know, you you feel a sense of achievement mm. but also because I'm so passionate about the subject that I am writing about because of all the reasons that I've said because you know I worked with those children and because mm-hmm. of my own family history it makes it feel somehow even more important because I th- well not more important but you know mm-hmm. deeply important because I think well you know perhaps I'll get more of a chance to to talk about this these things that are really important to me and to a lot of other people too and, um, you know, uh, I think that's that's the thing that I feel passionate about. So, yeah. you know, Oh, Pussy, yeah. it's so lovely to talk to you and hear about... I'm, go- I'm Googling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. I've seen it. Have you got another book on the go now? I've started mm. something. How do you feel about Can you tell us about it or is I'm it still t- early days? It's early days, but okay. it's actually set in Cyprus this time. At the moment, it's called Songbirds. And it's got something to do with the poaching of songbirds in Cyprus and also the migration of domestic workers. There was an incident in Cyprus where um, some domestic workers, they they went missing, people reported them to the police, nobody searched for them because they were foreign. And I was really inspired by that, so that's what I'm researching at the moment. I won't say too Mm -hmm. much, but that's my... Uh, you can see there's a similarity in my Absolutely. interest. So that's that's what I've started. But like I said before, it's always a risk starting mm. a novel. So you yes. never know what's going to happen. Mm. You've just got to kind of, whoever whoever's listening that loves writing, you've just got to kind of go with it with your heart. And... So OprahMagazine.com, huh? the beekeeper of Aleppo is right. number 15 of her 21 weeks. <gasps> Just saying. <laughs> just, just saying, babe. Just saying. I knew I had it made up. How did I not see that? Yeah, Could yeah. you forward that to I, me? Of course I can. <laughs> We'd love to spread that, a bit that of good American, news. That's your American cover. Yes. Yeah. 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 Wow. So she did it. So just so quickly, so claims fame, she did a, a walkthrough on her Instagram of her um, assistant's office that had lots of books in it. Right. And I'm telling you, your book is in her office. And then <gasps> she sort of pans to a, a Michelle Obama's becoming... Um, workbook i'm telling you it's in there you need if you scroll wow. through her instagram <laughs> i will do and it's on there wow what a lovely thing to find out on radio <laughs> <laughs> oh Christian, we've loved talking to you i've so loved much. talking to you too thank you so much for coming in your beautiful book beekeeper of aleppo it's out now and paid back it is as it says on the front of it courageous provocative and haunting it's a beautiful mm. beautiful book we highly recommend and so does Oprah. Yes. <laughs> that was the first part of our Bumper Badass Women's Hour. Coming up in our extra bits on Wednesday, you'll hear from Sophie Walker, former leader of the Women's Equality Party, about her new book, All About Rebellion. And Emma and Nat will be sharing their highlights. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.